welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. David Morris, it was just pointed out to me just a moment ago that young Isaiah's first visit to church and first sermon he's ever going to hear is, is going to be from David Morris. Well, he'll wake up then, so he'll be awake, yeah. And then uh, later in life, he'll see me and go, where's that other guy? David and I met some 30 years ago, something like that. And uh, the first time that we ever met, we sat down at a Luby's cafeteria in Franklin. And the whole time that we talked, we found out that we just sort of agreed on everything. And we just kept saying, you believe that too? Me too. And I point that out because last night, we were sitting at my house talking about how people allegorize scripture and talking about how the only way to really understand the Bible is to read it at face value. And, and at one point I said to him, I realize I'm preaching to the choir because once again, we find ourselves in complete agreement. And so it's always a happy day that I get to uh, step aside and let David Morris stand up here and preach because not only is he a very capable preacher, a very educated guy, uh, a humorous and sarcastic guy, so you know that I like him. You know that I get zealous about this pulpit. I'm very careful about who I let stand up here and who I allow to have access to you as a congregation. So I'm always really happy when I can just let my guard down and say, here, David, you got it. Take it. Go. So after this song, David Morris will come and preach to us this morning.
magnify our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're glad, brothers and sisters, to be back with you here at Grace Christian Assembly. It's always our privilege, and we're thankful for the fellowship of Brother Jim. A good time already at his home last night, enjoying discussing the scriptures, among other things. And we're just very thankful to, to be with you once again here to see many of you whom we've met previously as friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to meet some new uh, brothers and sisters. I'm thankful for that opportunity. I trust that our God will be glorified in our time together around his word. I want to invite you to take your copies of God's word, please, and turn with me to the gospel according to Matthew. And I'd like to read in your hearing a, a rather lengthy portion from the 22nd chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, I'd like us to begin reading there at the words of verse 15 and to read through to the end of the chapter in verse 46. I think some of you may be very worried because that's about 31 verses. And some of you are probably concerned because you've heard me speak long on five or six. And so you are maybe in trepidation, but I promise I I won't keep you a a minute past one, okay? (laughs) Some of you caught that. But this is a, a, a series of really questions that our Lord has asked, and then he asked one in which we see some of those events that marked his last week before his death. And I want us to focus on the four questions that we find here. And as we do, I want to give you by way of a title, Eternal Issues. Eternal Issues. And uh, if you will, notice as we read, see if you can do some detective work and pick out the questions along the way that are asked in this portion. Again, we begin at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 22. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and ask him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed to his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err, 
not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. When the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst or dared any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. We want to think together about this portion as we are together this morning, and we trust that as we do so, our God will make it rich and profitable to us for his glory and our soul's good. May we just together pray and ask our God's blessing to his word. Father, we bow in the name of thy worthy son, the one whose words we read here as men interacted with him. Father, as he spoke to them, we pray as we consider these things this morning, Father, that you would grant thy spirit to breathe upon our hearts, our minds, our understanding that we might appreciate what you by your spirit have given to us in this, your word of truth. And Father, we ask you to honor your son among us, to do that which alone can be accomplished by your spirit. It's not our ability to do so. Honor and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, may you as well show him to some who may not know him, either in this meeting place or listening remotely. May you be pleased to reveal the glory of the one of whom we've sung this morning and the one of whom we read. And Father, we pray that you would do that in his worthy name. Amen. Well, again, as we look at this portion, the title I give you is Eternal Issues. And, And we see that Those issues come before us in the form of what Matthew and also we have in Mark's account and Luke's account, the Synoptic Gospels. We have parallel accounts of what we find here, some different details. But but overall, these questions are brought to our Lord in this last week before his death. What's interesting to me with regard to it is there's a Jewish tradition that I've read about that when the Passover lamb was shut up from the 10th day to the 14th day when he would be slaughtered, it was the custom of the family to make sure that that lamb was perfect, to make sure that it was unblemished. And as it were, these religious groups within the Jews, among the Jews, they come and, if you will, they check out the lamb. The lamb's about to go to the slaughter. The lamb is about to be offered up for our sins. And they're examining him. 
And you know what they find out? He's flawless. They find out he's perfect. They find out that whatever question or issue they raise, he's going to answer it. He's going to address it rightly. He's going to address it well. And they're walking away astonished, amazed because of the wisdom of this one who is himself the very word of God and the wisdom of God. We want to think together about the questions I give you by way of a title again, eternal issues. But primarily questions are here. Life's full of questions. Where you want to go eat? That's a question some of you will be asking a little later, right? Don't think about it now. Get your mind off the food, please. And uh, I saw a hand there. I believe one young man had an answer. But uh, we're going to ignore that for now. But, but life's full of questions. Some of the questions are very insignificant. Some are very major. Some are ultra important, indeed essential. We find that in the case of what we see here. I want us as we walk through these questions to to think about the issue that is raised, not only by the questioner, but the issue that is addressed by the Lord in his answer to the question. And then finally, the issue that he raises in his final question here. And looking at them, let's just walk through them together, starting back at verse 15, where we see the Pharisees whose desire is to entangle the Lord. They want to entrap him if they can by his words. And and of course, uh, it's interesting that as the super separated group within Judaism, they team up with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians would have been that party, as their name suggests, that would have had no difficulty being in truck with Herod and with the Roman authorities. They were very much at home with that. And so you've got these super separatists who are joined with these ultra-worldly Jews, and they're coming to ask of the Lord Jesus a question. Let's pick up at verse 16. And they, that is the Pharisees, sent unto him, sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Liars. They're trying to entrap him, but they're going to hand him a bouquet. And so they do. Verse 17, the question, tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, it, it is a trap question without any debate. This question is one about a demand, and that demand is that Rome, the government, required taxes of the Jews. And as the question is put to the Lord Jesus, the catch is... If on the one hand he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, then obviously he's rebelling against Rome and they can bring him before uh, the Roman officials, Pilate, the procurator, and they can present him as one who's a rebel. On the other hand, if he says, yes, you should pay, he's going to go against all the sensibilities of Jewish nationalism. The the idea of the Jews being God's chosen people who were beholden to no one. Of course, now the times of the Gentiles were still going on here, still going on today. Uh, Daniel had spoken of them. Our Lord mentions them in Luke 21. They're going on. So the Jews couldn't deny they were under Roman authority in some measure. But for those who would have heard him say, yes, you should pay. As Jews, they would have found that to be a real stumbling block, a real problem. And so these Pharisees are convinced they have Jesus on the horns of a dilemma from which he has no escape. And I love the ease with which he not only escapes the dilemma, but answers their question. 
First of all, if you'll notice, we read there in verse 28, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? All the bouquet, he tossed their flowers in the trash can. Uh, everything they'd said, he knew they were just throwing that out with no real intent and real, real honesty that was worth worthy. Then he says this in verse 19, show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. He he requires them to furnish the money, first of all. And in doing that, by bringing a Roman coin to him, they were in effect saying, whatever we feel about paying taxes, we still are using the currency of Rome. We still have the coinage of Rome that we're using here in Jerusalem. We're using here as Jews. We're all involved in the uh, use and function of this currency. That in itself was damning for them, those who would want to just say, we shouldn't be doing this because they're producing the coin. And then the Lord Jesus asked a further question. Whose is this image? Verse 20, whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Now notice what's going on. Our Savior has him produce a coin. And as they show him that Roman coin, he may have pointed it out. Whose superscription is this? And whose image is this? And they had to say Caesar's because it would have had, for the Caesar of that day, it would have had that particular image and that particular title. And they have to readily acknowledge that. And then the Lord gives the takeaway with regard to this demand. And that is, you render then to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But then he added this statement. You render to God what belongs to God. Now, that, brothers and sisters, is so clear, so defined. It speaks about a demand that says, if the government has a demand on you, then you render to the government what demand they have. But he takes it a step further and he says, on the other hand, you who are God's creation, you who are made by God, you have to recognize something beyond the superscription and image of Caesar. You have to recognize the superscription of God. And I would say to you that all creation bears that superscription. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night uttereth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. All creation bears his signature. All creation bears his superscription. S.M. Lockridge, the black preacher, he was preaching this one time about his lordship, and he said, he didn't write his name on every cloud, but every cloud says, God made me. He didn't put his name on every blade of grass, but every blade of grass says, God made me. Creation bears his signature. Creation bears his superscription. But Jesus doesn't just ask about a superscription on the coin. He also asks about an image. For you see, while all creation bears his superscription, not all creation bears his image. But there's one species within creation, isn't there? 
that does bear specifically his image. Remember Genesis 1.26, and God said, in concert and counsel with himself, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let him have dominion. You see, every one of us, though that image has been broken, ruined, marred by the fall, every one of us have an image that is ours. There's debate about it. The theologians argue about, as they say it in Latin, the imago dei, the image of God. And yet the reality is, even though that image is marred and ruined by the fall, there are shards of it, like a mirror that's been cracked and fallen into the dirt and dust of our sin. That, that, that image still shines in some measure. The glitter, the glimmer of it there that bears testimony to the fact, David Morris, God made you. You bear his image you bear his superscription and therefore God has a demand that's incumbent upon you and it's true of every son and daughter of Adam every one of us who bear that image though it's been broken marred ruined by the fall to use the words of the hymn come ye sinners that image is still something that tells me David Morris you have a demand that God has placed on you and we'll say more about that as we move on. But, but let, let's go on to the second question, please, and consider together uh, as we thought about a question about a demand in verses 15 through 22. If you will now, think with me about a question about destiny. We read there in verse 23, The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And so they were sad, you see. Had to throw that one in. I'm sure you've heard it before. But anyway, Dr. Luke will tell us in the book of Acts that they confessed neither spirit nor angel nor resurrection. They would have been, I think, the skeptics of their day. You know, the ones whom we would call liberal with regard to what they looked at the Bible. They just saw very little supernatural. They were basically materialist. And so it is as, as they speak that they come to the Lord Jesus with this denial of the resurrection and they think we're going to trip him up with our question so in verse 24 we read saying master Moses said if a man die having no children his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother and that's commanded in Deuteronomy 25 it's called levirate marriage and we see it even before the law was given in the case of Judah, if you will. Remember when his sons were born in Genesis 38. We read about a similar practice that existed before Deuteronomy codified it. As they set the stage with those words of Deuteronomy 25, in verse 25, they present this history. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first when he had married a wife deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother Likewise, the second also, and the third into the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. <laughs> to me, that <laughs> finally. <laughs> but anyway, that's not in the text. <laughs> Therefore, their question, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Now, this question is one that I'm, I'm sure they felt was justified because from what we understand of what the Pharisees, who were in large measure the opposing party of the Sadducees in many respects, uh, the, the Pharisees had a very earthy view of the resurrection. 
And, and, and that comes out in some of the writings that we have of the Pharisees. They reflect the fact that they were very much oriented toward this flesh in an almost continuing way. Not altogether, mind you, but, but it had a very earthy feel. Now, we're not denying that the resurrection has a body, but they didn't understand some of the things that Paul would reveal when he said the mystery of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And so these men were thinking that in the resurrection, marriage would continue. Family would continue. And the Lord Jesus answers that so easily. I, I think they thought, we've got him now because he won't be able to pin down which of those husbands is going to be husband to her. The one who had her last, the one who had her first, the one who was better to her. Which one would it be? And our Lord goes on to say, and notice the words, verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. I love that answer. Brothers and sisters, that's where so many of our problems come in. We either don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. Sometimes we don't know both. But we need to know the Scriptures. We need to feed on the Word of God. One reason I appreciate your pastor so much is because of the fact that 16 ounces of the pound, he's going to give you a diet of God's word. There's wheat and no chaff. That's a blessing. That's a good thing. And, and, and I'm glad that not only are you hearing it, but it's going around the world. Praise God. The, the Internet and the opportunity because people need to know the scriptures. And so many are in churches today across this country. And they won't hear the word of God mentioned in messages. It's a sad thing. Jesus said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, but also he added, nor the power of God. Because you see, if we rightly understand the scriptures, we're going to realize the demand for the power of God, the need for that. Because as we'll see in our next question, the scriptures lead us to something that's beyond our abilities. Scriptures lead us to something that you and I can't handle. But more of that anon, as they like to say, right? Later. The Lord Jesus, as he says that in verse 29, then goes on to say, verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So basically he cuts through their questions and says, the need for marriage in this day, the need for marriage in this age is because of the fact that procreation is necessary to continue the race. But in that day, in the resurrection, that will no longer be necessary. There won't be the demand for children because we'll be like the angels. And, and there'll be that existence that is such that it will be marked by an immortality of the body. Now, I like the way the Lord Jesus really addresses this. The question is about destiny, particularly the destiny of one woman. Somebody said that when, when this was asked, somebody could have said, be careful about men who are concerned about another man's wife, you know. But they were concerned about whose wife she's going to be, her destiny. But the Lord Jesus winds it out to the destiny of every one of us. And he does so not only by speaking about the resurrection, but also speaking about the nature of our human existence. Notice that he goes on to say in verse 31 and the verse that follows. 
but is touching the resurrection of the dead. Have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Notice his words. He speaks of the fact that what God said, notice, let me read it again. Have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God? Now, these words are words that were spoken at the burning bush, Exodus 3, by God to Moses. But brothers and sisters, what God says in this book is addressed to us. Now, it may not be to us in the sense of direct connection, but it's for us. We, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, can find hope. That's why we need the word. We need it so it can build us up. It can, by the grace of God and the gospel through the work of the spirit, it becomes that incorruptible seed by which we're born again. That's why it's so very necessary. And the importance of it can't be overstated or overestimated. But the Lord Jesus quotes these words that God spoke in the burning bush to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. As he says this, what's significant is Abraham had been dead for almost 400 years. Isaac had followed and then Jacob as well. And uh, as they had passed, as they had died, God could tell Moses to the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. What did that point out? Well, for these men who had been long dead, it pointed out a continuing existence. But it also pointed out a continuing relationship. I love the way the writer of Hebrews was reflecting on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and how they lived pilgrim lives by faith. He would say, as they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims here, it says, wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Blaise Pascal was a mathematician, but also a philosopher and a believer in sovereign grace. Uh, Pascal, I guess if I said it rightly in the Francais, you know. Uh, uh, Blaise Pascal, I guess, would be right. I'm not sure, though. You can correct me if you know your French better, please. But Pascal, in his coat, when he was found, his, when, when he had died... There was found in his coat pinned a paper that said, he is not the God of the philosophers. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about how he identified himself, brothers and sisters, at the burning bush. I am the God of the starry heavens. I am the God who made the universe and the galaxies. No, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he's the God who enters into relationship with sinners like you and me, with fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what that means is that relationship is indestructible. Hallelujah. Death can't break it. Death can't stop it. Hallelujah. Moses is here before a burning bush. He's turned aside because his curiosity was stoked. This bush was burning, but it wasn't burnt up. And as he sees that burning bush, 
Out of the bush, the voice of God speaks and says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. They're still living unto me. What does that mean? That means that they had an existence in what theologically we call the intermediate state. What's that mean? Well, the intermediate state between death and the resurrection. And that's why Paul could say, remember in 2 Corinthians 5, we are willing rather to be absent from the body, be present with the Lord. I love the way the Greek phrases it, at home. We're willing to be at home with the Lord and away from home in the body. See, that's what happens when the believer dies. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 1, when he, in his imprisonment, was thinking about his possible impending death, he said, I, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's true because death doesn't break my relationship with my Father, doesn't break my relationship with my Savior. Rather, there's an ongoing relationship, but that relationship is not an end in itself because that relationship in absence from the body demands that one day this body get up. Hallelujah. (laughs) Like the old spiritual says, ain't no grave going to hold this body down. When that first trumpet sounds, going to get up out of the ground. Ain't no grave going to hold this body down. Why is that? Because God made us as corporeal creatures. And even in the eternal state, you and I will be corporeal creatures. We'll have a resurrected body. Now somebody says, well, it's a spiritual body. Yes, but spiritual is the adjective. Body is the noun. And brothers and sisters, God's design for humanity is that somewhere, either in the lake of fire bearing the wrath of God or in the presence of God by the grace of God, we're going to be in a bodily state somewhere in that resurrection. Now, in the case of the lost, that resurrection isn't called a resurrection in in Revelation 20. We read of the first resurrection, but the second death. But there'll be that bodily existence that will be man's eternally. And and those Sadducees, in their radical unbelief, they had failed to hear the voice of God when he said there at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And I'm glad to tell you, he's the God of David Morris too. He's the God of all who trust him. I think about that word to Hebrews 2 concerning our Lord Jesus in a similar sense to Hebrews 11. God's not ashamed to be called their God. And it says about our saviors, he took our humanity by a virgin womb. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. I tell you, I know a lot of reasons why. I'd be ashamed to call me a brother, but he's not ashamed. Thank God. The blood speaks. Sins forgiven through the mercy and grace of God and the gospel. Well, we need to move on. I I, I was kidding about quarter after one, so we need to move on. Let's notice as we move from that question about destiny, uh, let's notice next a question about duty. In verse 34, we read this, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. I could just imagine that, you know. I, I knew he could handle those Sadducees, but now it's our turn at bat. Yeah. 
We'll show those Sadducees how to silence the Lord. Well, they wouldn't have called him the Lord. This silenced this man, Jesus. And so we read in verse 34 or verse 35, then one of them, which was a lawyer, remember that doesn't mean a man who practices law in a legal sense of jurisprudence like our day. It means a man who was an expert in the Torah, the Jewish law, the law of Moses. And this man asked him a question, tempting him or testing him, saying, Master, which is the greatest command, great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We see here a question about duty. What is our responsibility as far as the greatest commandment goes? Some believe that this man was trying to find out uh, which commandment he could break, you know, avoid breaking the greater. He's testing the Lord. Now, Mark gives us a little expansion on this and tells us that as the Lord Jesus answered this man, he said, you've answered well. And the Lord Jesus, as he expands on that, tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Matthew doesn't record all that by inspiration. He gives us what we have here. And in what he says, he points out, really, that which speaks about our duty. Because what God gave to the Jews in what our Lord quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 5 here, Mark records the verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And, and, and what does that mean? Well, we've got a responsibility, a duty, and that duty is to love him with the whole of all our being. Everything that I am and have is to be calculatedly given, devoted to him every moment, every day, every hour. All of life in relationship with him. Now, if we kind of thread these things together, we think about the demand that we, we considered with regard to giving tribute to Caesar. We said we come back to that. The, the demand of being God's image bearer carries with it this responsibility. I owe him everything. I owe him every minute of life, every, every aspect of life, every area of life. All of it is to be devoted to him, given over to him. And then the second is very much like it. And that is I'm to love my neighbors myself. That means when somebody cuts me off in traffic, I say, have it your way. And I have to confess to you, I don't do that. <laughs> mm, I'll get them. Sorry, I made myself appear so carnal. Sometimes I don't do that. Sometimes I say, well, I've done that before. I don't always do that, though. You see, the, the thing that our Lord points out here is the responsibility of every son and daughter of Adam to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors ourselves. The sad thing is, Every one of us have failed to do that. Now, if that's the greatest commandment, sometimes people talk about who's the greatest sinner, you know, Hitler. They'll talk about Khrushchev, Stalin. All kinds of names may be brought up. But here's something that I think is a reasonable proposition. It seems to me that the one who is the greatest sinner would be the one who's broken the greatest commandment. 
And that means every son and daughter of Adam, in some measures, the greatest sinner there is because we've all broken the greatest commandment. And not only that, the second greatest commandment, we've broken it as well. I failed to love my neighbor as myself. So I stand guilty before God with regard to the responsibility that's incumbent upon me as his image bearer. This is what's demanded. And, and not only is there a moral aspect of my bearing the image of God, there's also an eternal aspect. I'm going to live forever. And if I'm a lawbreaker, that means I'm going to live forever in the wrong place bad place but I remind you this is the gospel according to Matthew you remember what gospel means good news so we're not at a dead end street here hallelujah you see the one who is catechizing these Pharisees with the first and second great commandments is the one who by a virgin womb as the Son of God came down as the Son of Man. Why? So that he might love God his Father with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. But not only that, so that he might love his neighbor as himself. And in doing that, he earned the right to become our substitute so that he could, in the words of the gospel chorus, pay a debt he did not owe because you and I owed a debt we could not pay. Now, I, I, I kind of gave that out a little early because I wanted to really save that for the last question, which is the one Lord asked. But I like what the preacher said about, this is good homiletics. He said about preaching, first I tell him what I'm going to tell him, then I tell him, then I tell him what I told him. And that's what homiletics is, driving that nail and then pulling out the nail set and driving a little further, you know. But the Lord Jesus goes on to ask a question. While those Pharisees are gathered around and he's just catechized them about the law that they have failed to keep, the law which they stand guilty of breaking, the law which they violated because they haven't loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They haven't loved their neighbors themselves. The Lord Jesus then asks, we read it, verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. I love this scene in the Bible. Here the son of God, he's got them, and before he lets them go, he said, Fellas, I got a question for you. What do you think about Christ? Remember, Christ is but the Greek word Christos, which is the translation of Mashiach or Messiah. What do you think about Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, every good Jew knew whose son Messiah would be. The son of David. And I think they expected a check plus and a smiley face from the teacher. <laughs> good job. Pat on the head. But he said, in effect, hold on just a minute. You haven't plumbed the depths of who Messiah is as to his sonship. And then he went on to ask, 
He saith unto them, verse 43, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. These Pharisees who studied the law meticulously, who checked off their list about keeping the law and fulfilling its precepts. These Pharisees had not an inkling, not a clue about who Messiah would be. I believe part of it was because they had reduced the law to a set of precepts that they felt they were up on. And they failed to realize that they had fallen dreadfully short because they had not done what the first and second greatest commandments say. They didn't realize their sinnerhood. They thought they were good folk, you know. I'm the church crowd. I'm the Sunday school stat. I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. No, I'm not a sinner. Well, brothers and sisters, that seems to be their mindset. And you see, if you're not a sinner, you don't need a divine Savior. If, if, if you're not a sinner, all you need is a son of David Savior. All you need is somebody in human form to come and deliver you from your shackles of oppression and, you know, all the other, may I say it, concomitants of wokeism. <laughs> yeah. All you need is a human savior. Politics can solve it. When that son of David appears as a knight in shining armor, then we're going to be freed from this Roman oppression. They need to be freed from a greater oppression. And that's why the son of David who came had to be more than a son of David. You see, the son who came had to be the eternal son of God. And David had recognized that in that great Psalm 110 that our Lord quotes here. For David, in, in Psalm 110 verse 1, here's, over here's an inner Trinitarian conversation. The Lord said to my Lord. Well, David, I thought your Lord was Jehovah. Yeah, Jehovah speaking of Jehovah. That's right. Because, brothers and sisters, the one God is three distinct eternal persons. I can't explain that. I just know it's so. The Bible teaches it. That's enough for me. Try to figure it out. Somebody said, to, I may have told you this before. Somebody said that to fully understand the Trinity is to lose your mind and not believe it is to lose your soul. That's pretty good. <laughs> but, but, you know, the one who came to be Savior, if he's to pay a debt... That is so deep that I can spend an eternity in hell and never finish paying for it. If it's a debt that great, then the man who pays that debt is going to have to be more than man. And he can't be an angel because an angel still, even with the capabilities they have, an angel is still a finite being. The one who is man could pay the sin debt and hell penalty that you and I owe is going to have to be eternal as well as man. And that's the glory of the gospel. That the Son of God, who is eternal God himself, that he by a virgin womb became man, as Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah seven fourteen. And what's his name? Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us. Hallelujah. And in the humanity that we have sent apart by a virgin womb, he wrapped himself. 
And he came down, and by that virgin womb in which he was born into our humanity, he was blessed to be able to live a life in which he loves the Father, as we've said already, all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, loved his neighbors himself. How much did he love us as himself? To the point that he went to the cross, and he took our sin debt and hell penalty on himself, and he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you and I had perished, one day we'd have heard the voice of God saying, depart from me. I never knew you out of my presence. You know what happened to the son of God on the cross? The father said, as my as sin bearer of my people out of my presence. Why have you forsaken me? There was an answer to that question. He was bearing my sin debt. He was bearing my hell penalty so that I could hear instead of depart from me, ye cursed and everlasting fire. I could hear, come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. Can I skip a skip? Oh, I'm going to be welcomed into his presence when I should have been told, get out of my sight. I can't stand your stench. Your sin stinks. Go to hell with it. Instead, come you blessed. These Pharisees had not a clue about that because they had never seen their need as sinners. They had a little standard and they measured themselves by that standard and said, we're measuring up pretty, pretty. But the only way that you and I'll ever measure up is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The one who here asked them the most important question that any son or daughter of Adam will ever answer. What do you think about Christ? Mr. Newton wrote about it this way in one of his poems. What think ye of Christ? That's the test to try both your state and your scheme. Ye cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. And he went on to say this. Some take him a creature to be a man or an angel at most. Sure, these have not feelings like me, nor know themselves wretched and lost. So guilty, so helpless am I. I dare not confide in his blood, nor on his protection rely, unless I am sure he is God. And thank God he is God. Oh, in in his humanity, he's the son of David. But in his deity, he is, brothers and sisters, eternal God. He is Emmanuel. He is mighty God, everlasting father. That's our savior. And because of that, in his humanity is the sinless one who lived out a righteousness that he didn't need. He had his own righteousness. He was working out one for us. Mr. Bunyan, I understand, put it this way. He said, he that... Taught the Sermon on the Mount, kept it perfectly. He said, if you meet a man and you have two coats and he needs a coat, give him a coat. What he did in his humanity was he worked out a coat for us. See, I, I didn't have a garment. All I had was rags. I'd been in the hog pen. I had rags. But he's given me a garment. He's given me a, a new coat. I've told you before how I love my clothes, haven't I? Yeah, I, I'm wearing another suit that a dead man gave up. Dear sister up in Statesville gave me some of her husband's clothes after he passed. I'm glad I can enjoy them. But I'll tell you what, I'm wearing a better garment that one who died for me gave me. And then having died, as we sung already this morning, he got up. Because death could not keep him. Death could not 
keep its grasp on him. He's alive. And we shall be forever with him, all who know him. And if there are any in this meeting place this morning who don't know him, I would say to you, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Come to him. Believe on him. Because what you think of him is the all-important question. All of it ties together too. the question of our uh, uh, of the demand that we, we bear his image, the destiny. We're eternal beings, the, the, the love for God we ought to have. We failed, but Christ measures up and Christ gives to all who trust him the righteousness, which he, through his work at the cross, is able to give to sinners dealing with our sin and then as well giving to us that robe of righteousness. I'm so glad this morning for that. Oh, I could preach some more about that. That's that's a mighty good subject. But you've been, as always, so kind and gracious as you hear the word, and I thank you. I'm grateful for the privilege once again to be with you, brothers and sisters. Pastor Jim, thank you for the opportunity. May our God bless his word. And if today you don't know this Christ, this Messiah, run to him. For us who do know him, may our heart response be to him in the words of Ms. Elizabeth Payson Prentice in her song. May our heart response be more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Oh, how we ought to love him and how I felt in loving him. He is worthy. He is worthy. Amen. May God grant us then to love him and live for him. And honor this one who answers really the questions of life in the way that no one else can. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.